You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 129 Speaking Taiwanese. lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. This week, we're having a deep and impactful conversation about Taiwanese language, heritage, culture, and identity with Erica of Kuishimbo and the World Languages Project. Now, what I love about this conversation is not only the way Erica tells a story, but also that we're taking a closer look at how language and the loss and gain of it, the way it's used and weaponized, even criminalized, can have a lasting effect on generations of families in society. Erica talks to us about growing up in California of mixed Asian heritage and experiencing proximity to her parents' languages. She talks to us about the disconnection she felt from her ancestry at times and some of the steps and practices she put in place to reestablish that connection. She talks about learning Taiwanese and how she's been able to learn the language while she's been living in Taiwan for the past few years. I want to give you all a fair warning. There is a fair amount of discussion around trauma, both racial and generational, in this conversation. So if this is something that you're also working through, I just want you to be warned before you listen. Thank you to Erica for being so candid and so open about not just your journey, but also sharing your Taiwanese heritage and language with all of us. If you enjoy episodes of Speaking Tongues, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts and like and subscribe on YouTube so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. And if you've been a longtime listener of the show or even a recent listener, you can now pledge ongoing support for the show on buymeacoffee.com or on patreon.com. Special shout out to Speaking Tongues recent supporters and patrons Heidi L, Linnea H, Pat N, and Yari A. For just $5 a month, you will have access to excerpts from this conversation that did not make it to the full published episode. And as you know, I wrote a book. My Food Zine of International Language and Cuisine Taste Buds Volume 1 is available now for purchase. Check social media for the sneak peek inside the book and make sure you purchase one for yourself and one for your friends. Links to all platforms are in the show notes. Okay, let's chat. Welcome back to another episode of Speaking Tongues. I'm here today with Erica. How are you today, Erica? I'm well, thank you, Elle. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm happy that, you know, we were able to find this time to talk. I know that you are, uh, we are 12 hours apart, I think. Yeah, and you're in you're in Taiwan and, and I'm here in New York City. So thank you so much for making this time for this conversation. Pleasure. I'm open heart. I know we've exchanged open heart emojis before, so. <laughs> I like to start each episode of the podcast with the same converse, with the same question, with the same question. And that is, what is your first language and which languages have you learned to speak? So my first, the first language I heard was probably Japanese, my mother tongue. And then my first, like the first language I spoke was American English. 
um, since I have an older sister and she started pre preschool kindergarten and started making friends and passing on cool words like copycat. Like, so that's, yeah. And then I learned to speak, I would say I'm rusty, but like conversational level Japanese and Mandarin. Mandarin I'm using here in Taiwan. And then I've learned some words and phrases in my heritage language, Taiwanese Hokkien. And here in Taiwan, we call it Daiwan Wei or Dai Yi. Oh, how interesting. I didn't know that. Um, I think that's really interesting that you have such a, a mix of languages that you were exposed to from such a young age. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's been... It's kind of like I'm working backwards now because I it's like English and Japanese were actually prioritized growing up um, for like school and for Saturday school. And then so I I'm sort of catching up now with the Taiwanese, which was something I heard at home, but I never learned to understand or speak it. Yeah. Did you go to Japanese school? I did like from age five. We were in the Gardena Buddhist Church and, you know, I was grew up down in Palos Verdes. And so our parents would drive us out to Gardena Buddhist Church. And so that's where we went to Nihongo Gakko on Saturdays. And I learned like pretty basic stuff like katakana, hiragana, you know, some kanji maybe. And then when we moved to the west side of L.A., I started at Sautel Gakuin and went there every Saturday. And then... I actually learned Latin in school, like a, in regular school, which seems really kind of nerdy. <laughs> but that is the language I chose to learn. And then I switched to Japanese again, like later in high school. Didn't learn Taiwanese Hokkien until like a semester into like basically maybe sophomore, junior year of college at Berkeley. I learned Taiwanese for the first time. And then after that, I, after I graduated Berkeley, I went, I moved to Taipei and learned Mandarin for two years. Wow. First thing I want to say is I also studied Latin for four years in high school. And I don't think it's nerdy. I think Latin is amazing. <laughs> it, it is amazing. I wish I remembered more of it. Yeah. So do I. Um, the second thing I was going to ask you was, you know, so you grew up in Southern California in the Los Angeles area. Were there, I guess in, in your community, were there many people who spoke Japanese, who spoke um, Mandarin or Taiwanese Hakkian at all? Or did you notice that, that that was more of like family language or community language? Like, how did you notice the languages being shared among people? So I actually grew up like in school, like when I was going to middle school and high school in L.A. on the west side of L.A., I was, go you know, I grew up in seventh grade going to bat and bar mitzvahs. So I would like so most of my classmates were actually Jewish American. And I grew up, you know, like you go to temple before the party. And so you might hear some like Hebrew um, and then obviously in Southern California, there's a ton of Spanish. Like it's, I would say that that's the dominant language other than English that's spoken in my community. Um, but in terms of like, maybe when I was younger, when I was in 
like the Gardena Buddhist church, that's when I would hear more like Japanese. Um, and then if we had relatives that they would speak Taiwanese with my dad, um, all my grandparents with us, they spoke with my sisters and me, they spoke Nihongo Japanese, but, um, like with my dad, my uncle and mom would speak Taiwanese and, um, their generation was colonized. And so they pretty much spoke like native level Japanese. And so since my mom didn't speak Taiwanese, she knew some words and greetings, but not like she wasn't conversational. So, and my dad went to like college in Japan. So he's like fluent. So then the default was at home was pretty much like Japanese and English. If our parents, Parents spoke to us in Japanese. Growing up, I kind I was kind of naughty. I replied in English, and I had sisters, so sometimes we would even speak in code, like using slang, <laughs> to, so that they wouldn't understand like what we were up to on Friday night or whatever. <laughs> you know, and then I grew up in the Bay. Like I went to college in Berkeley, and when you go to college, like that's the first time you're. I'm, I met like people from other parts of California. And so I was exposed to some like slang from NorCal, like the North Bay where my freshman year roommate was from. So, you know, there you hear things like Hekka instead of Hella and like, and then out there in Oakland, you hear like hyphy and other kind of youth slang. So that's kind of like more of the landscape, I think, linguistically in California. You know, you have this language I, I don't want to call it a barrier but you have a um you know your your parents are speaking their languages and you and your sister I guess are speaking English so what was the dynamic like when like, did your parents want you to learn the languages I mean you did go to Japanese school but like did they want you to communicate with them and did they want you to communicate with your grandparents with your elders um, did they express a specific interest about passing their languages on to you? Um, was it something that you wanted and felt like you didn't have enough tools to, you know, um, acquire the language? Like, what was that like, I guess? That's a really good question. I feel like you're like picking up on yeah, that's like a really good question because it's true. Like our parents, both of them were actually very good at languages themselves. Like my mom was an interpreter when she was in Japan and she would, you know, she would interpret meetings. I think Papa mentioned that she worked like even with folks from like the Dubai UAE region. And so she was also very international. She had studied abroad in Canada. And so she was actually on vacation in Los Angeles when she met my dad. Okay. It was not intended that she, they were going to meet um, on holiday, like she was going to be on holiday and meet him um, and then end up staying and then like raising kids, you know. Um, but my dad was also really good at languages. Like he, he, English is his fourth language. So he's like, he grew up, you know, in the home speaking Daiyi, right? Daiwan Wei is what he calls it. And then, um, but his parents were colonized by Japan. So they can also speak Nihongo, but together they always spoke Daiwan Wei. And then he went to college in Japan, like at one of the, like the best private university in Tokyo is Keio. And Papa went to Keio and he, so he's fluent at that level. And I always grew up thinking like, oh, I wish I could, 
you know, like when you do mash and stuff, like I would always put like KO University. It never happened, but it was always like a dream. I remember visiting and stuff. Um, and so he, and then his generation in Taiwan was part of that martial law generation that was forced to speak Shouwen, Mandarin. So he, like Taiwanese was banned, like in his generation. And so the language erasure kind of happened, um, like with our generation, a lot of the, initially when I was meeting friends, they had not, they weren't able to speak Taiwanese. But I, because I had, we had grown up in the U.S., like, I didn't have this cultural history. Like, you know, they're not teaching Taiwanese history in American schools. And so I didn't actually, I was kind of ignorant about the cultural history, even when I got to Taiwan um, the first time I studied abroad after college. Um, I could share that story because it kind of shows, like, how much, how little I knew about my cultural history after college, which is kind of sad, you know, but my parents, I think what they got really right was like, they really, and I'm kind of glad I, they used everything they could. They used like manipulation, like they like, and I think this is true for a lot of parents that like they, cause I've talked to language partners about this. They'll like, they're real, they, they put the pressure on to, to, to practice the language. They'll use everything. Like I had sisters. So they'll like, <laughs> they'll be like, well, you know, so-and-so is like speaking in Yongo and, you know, you should really practice. And like, they would literally use manipulation and this kind of stuff <laughs> to like get us to speak better Nihongo. Um, but like, it wasn't until like now that I myself like decided, like as part of like, I guess as part of my Honestly, it's part of like my larger healing, like in my later 30s, I started to realize that there are all these missing puzzle pieces. And so I like, to be really honest, I was like talking to my therapist in the Bay Area, like our last session was about like finding my missing puzzle pieces in Taiwan. And so I was going to go back you know, I pretty much spent all my life in the U.S. except for the two years I was in Taipei after college to learn Mandarin and six months in 2015, I think, that I was in Japan. And then I just, I knew I had these sort of parts of the story that were just missing. And I knew that I was, I could just go back to Taiwan and I could find them missing puzzle pieces. And so I think that was so coming here was more like my own desire to reconnect with my cultural heritage and lineage and and through language exchange and oral history I've been able to like put all these puzzle pieces together um but initially I would say like my parents and I'm really grateful that they did they really really did everything they could to like insist that we like remember our languages and and then they would every summer since we were babies, they would fly back to Kaohsiung and to Yokohama so that we could spend weeks with our grandparents. Yeah. And I'm really glad that they did that every summer. So I had we were really close to our grandparents, like even though I didn't have like a, a language nest like in California necessarily, like they did visit. But because we had those summers, like I would have like a deeper like rootedness like in these countries 
um, like, and so I have these experiences being like a little girl, like 12 in Japan, exploring on my own, like, um, and I have some funny experiences too. But you know, stuff like that. Um, I think that's it kind of maybe it's why also that like, sometimes I'm like, people are like, where are you from? Because maybe they pick up on that rootedness that I have a deep connection to those countries as well as being very American. That's so interesting that you said that. In my case, my family is, my mother's family is from the Bahamas. And I grew up going to the Bahamas every summer and not really like living there like a citizen or like a resident, but just going to see family and going, you know, my mom would go and and um, my brother and I, my with my mom and my grandmother and you know show us around places that she remembered show us places where you know that that were part of her memory bank and it's interesting because I have such memories of being in this part of the world that I don't have any like long-standing connection to like I would never call myself Bahamian because I'm not born there and my mother was not born there it's just you know it's it's a generational connection that we have going further back than my mom so it's it's like and I even feel like even in my late 30s like coming to like trying to find this rootedness and like what do I call myself like where do I belong how do I feel so connected to a place that I don't hold a passport to or a place that I don't speak the local um dialect and I don't have an accent and I don't you know trying to like find the connection where they're you know being a very much a New Yorker, but having this heritage at the same time that I feel so connected to, but yet so distant from. And um, this is not an episode about me, but I just wanted to say that in terms of your story, I think it's an interesting uh, thing to note about identity because it's not black and white. And it this is why I want to have these conversations about maybe not even finding an answer because you're we're all on our journeys. So we we may not get to that answer. We may not have that answer, but even our journey doesn't look the same. Our journey in finding the pieces and putting things together doesn't doesn't look the same, doesn't feel the same. And they can be similar in, in certain ways, but I really love that. And I, I picked that out of the story that you were saying because of how I feel about my journey as well. And this is, I think, the beauty of a podcast like this because you know I'm African American and you're Asian American but we have these parallels and we have I, I want people to see that you can be different but you can be similar and that's the beauty of our humanity that's the first thing I wanted to say <laughs> the second thing I wanted to I wanted to say was like I think it's beautiful that you made that huge move to Taiwan um in order to find uh, you know, that piece of your journey and and put that that puzzle piece there and to, you know, reclaim a piece of your identity. And I, I really am curious to know, I guess, before that, what were some of the ways that you were able to connect with your Taiwanese heritage? And what were some of the things 
you know, away from language? Like what were some of the things that you were able to do to, to have that connection at all? Yeah, I guess because, well, growing up in LA, like once we moved to the West side, um, you know, around Lunar New Year, I have a distinct memory where, you know, we'd be driving out in the minivan, like we had an MPV and my parents drove us out to like Montre Park to get the Lunar New Year foods. And I actually learned how to say some of them. Like there's one that's like this, it's kind of like the size of like a Costco muffin. Like it's pretty big (laughs) and firm, but it's like technically a sponge cake and it's tan color um, and it's called huakwe. And then there's this like kind of, it's kind of flat and round. And it's like a really sticky mochi cake, like stickier than daifuku, stickier than gyuhi, stickier than like ohagi. It's just very sticky. Like it gets on your teeth and fingers. It's called dinkwe. And then we would go for, you might know this one. It's lobo gao. It's like a daikon radish cake. It's really yummy. It's called lobo gao in jongwen and then gyamkwe in Taiwanese. But so we... You know, we would go like around the Lunar New Year, like in our family, obviously, like January 1st, we always did the Japanese Osechi Yori. That was that's a big that's the priority. Like that's the one we celebrate. But then also since L.A. has, you know, you could just drive like, I guess, 45 minutes from our house to Monterey Park and then be able to get these yummy treats. And so as a little kid, like that was the best, like. Or even going for dim sum, you know, like that's more Shangan. It's more Hong Kong, but it's um, it still feels very close to something you might eat in Taiwan, like a really good dim sum. And so we were able to get those foods like in L.A. or the larger part, you know, like San Gabriel Valley, um, Arcadia. There's actually a really good Taiwanese restaurant called Simbala in Arcadia. And you can actually get like very authentic Taiwanese like noodles. And it, it tastes like it, it feels like you're actually in Taiwan. Um, and so I guess a lot of the a lot of it, if it wasn't language, it was really through food. What I'm learning, though, it's a global phenomenon. Like I felt like, OK, Taiwanese people are obviously perpetually hungry. But then I start to learn about other places and I was like, OK, they also have like their own dumplings or their own rice and beans or, you know what I mean? So it's like, I feel like every culture has their grubbers, like the people who get really excited about their cultural foods. And, and obviously my mom, luckily she was like a really good cook. So we got to grow up eating like, you know, all of her, um, in Nihongo it's kate ryori, like Japanese home cooking. And then she also learned some Taiwanese dishes. So one that we always made at home that she made was the Taiwanese like omelets. And they put like, um, she puts like a, like a, it's, it's like, it's called Hoshi Daikon. So it's like a dried radish (laughs) turnip thing. And then with negi, like a green onion, um, or she learned how to make like a Taiwanese noodle dish with like ground beef and egg that Ama made. Um, and so she she would incorporate, you know, they would make our cultural foods at home. 
Um, and then like for birthdays, she'd ask me like, what, what do you want to eat? And I would always say like temaki sushi. It's like the, you know, you get all the ingredients and you can make it yourself like your own hand rolls. Um, you know, and it's LA, like LA has the best like Asian food, like, like just like New York, I'm sure New York has so much diversity of food, but also LA has like, you can go to Thai town, you can go to Koreatown, you can go to Chinatown. There's, um, there's really yummy pupusas. There are East LA has really yummy, you know, taco trucks, like even so does like Venice beach or, you know, like Oakland has really yummy taco trucks, like with pescados, you know, like, so I think it's like that. It's, it's really through food and then maybe through grocery stores. Food is the great connector, I think. Um, <laughs> which is why I, I, I wrote my book over the summer because I, you know, language and food to me is like, like this, like, <laughs> you know. Um, so when you... <laughs> And you know what's funny is like, I still want to talk about food later because I feel like even though you gave a, a, an overview of the foods, I feel like there's there's still more to talk about when it comes to food. So we'll we'll talk about food a little bit later. Um, you decided to move to Taiwan and I would love to know what were some of those things, what were some of the things that went into that decision um, to move there and was it something you had been thinking about for a while? Was it on a whim? Um, how how did you come to that decision to move? I think the main impetus was because I remember distinctly, like I would be in my, I was living in Berkeley on in this house. It's like the Fairview house. Like I was living in a community and the pandemic hit and I was living it was like a time when I, it was before the vaccines and I was basically hearing about like incidents of anti-Asian violence, like through friends. Like I would hear from a Taiwanese friend who had moved to from Taipei to San Francisco and heard from a friend who knew someone got beat up in the Bay, or I would just read about, you know, like the Burmese man in Midland Texas. Texas and his young son who got like stabbed or you know just like it started to freak me out like I started to get like I think I just you know every time I left the house I was terrified and it was like around that early part of the pandemic like it wasn't even it was like very early stages where it was kind of hitting like places like Italy harder and so and it was also even hitting I had a friend in Taiwan actually who was because of the proximity to, you know, the, like where the, like where it started, like people in Taiwan and people like in Italy were actually feeling the effects of it more early on. And so they were communicating like what they were going through with the healthcare system and all of that. And so back then, like I didn't, it wasn't affecting Berkeley so much, you know, but it, I would hear it from people who were in different places that were closer to the impact and so I guess I started to think and just because like also Taiwan at the time like they were really handling it really well and so when I ended up moving it was actually like zero cases of COVID like in Taiwan like that's you know what I mean so there was that like Taiwan was hand, like mitigating really well 
And then I was also in the US, like, ex- not. I mean, you know, I think you can relate to this. It's like being a, a woman of color. You're a black woman, but, you know, during a pandemic, it's like being Asian female. You might be able to understand how that could be unsafe. You know, like I would ex- like for years, actually, even before the pandemic, I felt like I would get harassed, like in the grocery store like in a workplace, in, um, in housing and just like, you know what I mean? I just would experience trauma, like racial trauma, like misogyny, like all this kind of stuff. And it was just like, by the time the pandemic hit, I was like, all of that had accumulated. And then I was also terrified, absolutely terrified. And it was sort of like, all of this structural stuff was already traumatizing before the pandemic. And then, you know, all the me too stuff. It was just like living in America is a traumatizing experience. And I just sort of realized I could go somewhere else. Like I could go to my heritage country. (laughs) And also I think when all the anti-Asian violence was happening and I blogged about this, it actually made me more, take more interest in my heritage like because of the anti-Asian violence, I took more interest and more curiosity in my Asian, my Asian heritage. Like it made me more proud to be Asian. It made me want to learn more about Taiwanese language. It made me want to express it more. Like, and if people were racist, like I would want to express it even more. <laughs> like it just brought it out. Like, a sense of pride, I guess. Once the second shot was like 90% effective, I got on a plane and flew to Taiwan to quarantine. And it was like, during quarantine, it was zero cases of COVID in Taiwan. And then when I got out of the cor- like the quarantine hotel about like a, a day and a half later, I had about a day and a half in Taipei to explore with my aunt and uncle. And then they announced that the country was going into soft lockdown. So it was just like weird timing. But even then, it's still safe. It was still safer than being in the US. And I feel like there's also, in during COVID, I realized like there are parts of me that are actually more Taiwanese. Like I, it kind of brought it out more. Like here, people are much more, there's like this village people vibe, <laughs> like a communal it's like a community thing where the U S has it too, like the, through mutual aid and stuff, I think it comes out, but for the most part, I would say that the policies were more like individualist in the U S but in Taiwan, it felt more like people would mask to protect others. And so for me, I guess during COVID, I felt more comfortable being in Taiwan than in the U S. And so that was also a driver. I'm sorry for all of that trauma that you experienced. That's horrific. The The past couple of years have just brought out the worst in a lot of people. And I think they've also brought out the best in a lot of people. But I think it, unfortunately, like you said, our former president just caused like a lot of trash to come to the surface and for people to be okay with 
hatred and hatred is not okay. So I'm really sorry to hear that you experienced all of that. And it sounds to me like Taiwan, well, you, you, you also said this earlier, is like a part of your healing and a part of, um, you know, that reconnection process was a part of healing. So um, I, I hope you're safe. I hope you feel safe um, in, in Taiwan and um, that that process is, is happening for you, that you are healing. Anyone who might be healing, like in my thirties, it was more about, it was sort of like, I had to even go to therapy only to re because there were just parts of like, it was that I was disconnected from cultural history, my language, and all of that caused some suffering. Like, um, I don't even know how to describe it, but that's sort of why I had to heal. Like in many ways, it comes out psychosomatically, like through the body, or it can come out in relationships. But it, the more I, it's sort of like the more I understood my cultural history, the more I understood the intergenerational events that, that got passed down, the, um, like the historical events that took place in my grandparents' and parents' generation it became easier to heal because a lot of that, a lot of being a person in the, in the growing up in the U S being born in the U S a lot of the trauma or a lot of the suffering can come through that break, like the migration when a parent migrates to another country, marries outside their culture, and then has to raise their kids in like the United States. Um, some of that, a big part, a big chunk of the trauma or suffering or pain is from that, like all the loss, the cultural loss, like that the parent loses connection to their village, like their neighborhood, to the neighbors, to their parents who would be the ones passing down wisdom, like ancestral medicine or um, things, simple things like, um, like breastfeeding versus, you know, in my mom's generation, they were teaching like, the nurses were telling her to like use formula. And, and so then later on in my life, I had a lot of allergies and then it came out through eczema. A lot of the things that would be healing was just learning about the kind of information that would normally get passed down through a lineage in a consistent way. Since it was broken through migration, there was this kind of unmetabolized trauma or there was just cultural loss and a lot of um it was like my mom was the first one to do it too so she just was not connected to like resources you know and so or support network and so a lot of the a lot of that healing came like later on in my in my adulthood or sort of like oh she just needed you know to be connected to her to her village you know it wasn't like there's something wrong with me in the U S you start to feel like as an Asian, like woman, I always thought like, Oh, there must be something wrong with me. Or you have this sense of like cultural invalidation. I think like societal, like you feel different you feel like you don't belong or there must be something personally wrong, but it was really just that there are cultural differences. And then also like, I was disconnected from the culture and then that led to a lot of confusion and feeling like I didn't belong. Part of what's happening in my awareness right now is like learning um, 
what, how my country has even affected my own heritage. Like how coming here, I, I learned like from my uncle through oral history that, that like my ancestors had to hide from U.S. bombs like in Jai because the Japanese um, military bases were out here in Taiwan when they were colonizing it. And so it makes sense like how I had carried that much intergenerational trauma. Now it makes sense. It's like, not only were you caught co your people colonized by Japan, they were then doubly harmed by the U S <laughs> bombing it during the war. Like that, that's a lot of trauma to carry. And then it was passed down. And I, so then when you're like disconnected in the diaspora, you're just sort of feeling like the, the epigenetic effects of that. But then coming back and learning the history, you're like, oh, well, that makes sense. This is a deep ocean water conversation, my friend. <laughs> and I love it. I love it so much. Um, <laughs> these are things that I definitely want to talk about um, more on the show and, you know, not just language. Um, so I do thank you for sharing that that part that part of your story. Um, I do want to ask you about language in a practical sense of moving to to Taiwan during this period. What was your experience like interacting and communicating with people using the the Taiwanese Hokkien? Um, how much did were you able to communicate on your own? How much were you able to understand? Did you take any classes or? You know, was your was it a soft landing, a rough landing? Like, how was it like, like using the language once you once you did get to Taiwan? Yeah, when I first got here, my language skills were so non-existent that it was so rusty too. That people were like, "Are you Japanese? Are you from Hong Kong? <laughs> like, you must." Yeah, even though I look Taiwanese, like, um, but now so and then they. They were, we didn't understand each other. So in Taiwanese, we say like listening, no, like it means you don't understand, like ting budong. So when I first got here, people would, would say, you, um, man man lai, like take your time learning it. And then now it's going to be two years straight that I've been here. And now people say, they're really nice. They're, they say, like, oh, ni jang de jongwen, yue lai yue hao, like you're improving. Like you're getting better. Like I can actually understand what you're saying, you know, but they're being polite. Like my, I've, I've met like friends, kids and they're like toddlers and my Chinese, my, my, my Chinese, my, my Mandarin Chinese is like underneath their level, you know? And then like my Taiwanese is like, I would say it's like pre-verbal, like early stages, but I'm learning to like embrace that. Like like I'm here, I'm learning. I just got this textbook actually. I brought it. And it's um it comes with an audio CD. So I just borrowed my neighbor's boombox and I've been learning it that way. When I first got here, I was I watching a lot of um Taiwanese gangster movies because it's kind of I guess it's a stereotype too, because back in the day actually they would make fun of Taiwanese is like this low class language or you know what I mean there's during martial law there was through Taiwan Twitter I've learned when people shared their family histories like um that the language was made fun of it was put down it was seen as low class or um and so 
there's I guess there's a stereotype that it's like spoken by gangsters or something but it is a good way to learn is like to watch movies to hear what how it's actually used and I I personally enjoy watching those movies so I I would pick up words that way um my dad actually told me that Taiwanese Hokkien was like Taiwan way is spoken in the churches here and he was like oh you know you should go to the church and that's I've heard that echoed by other friends I've met here. They're like, yeah, that's a good way to learn. And so Christmas day, I actually went to church. The service was all in like, uh, like Taiwan way, like the characters. There's actually a written system of Taiwanese that a lot of folks actually don't know that because it's like, that's the level of erasure there is that when you initially, when I initially learned it, it was just phonetic without written characters. But now you can actually use Itaigi online to look up. You can add the Chinese characters and it comes up with Taiwanese characters, which are similar. And then the Taiwanese like Roma Pinin. It's actually a good way to learn is to go to church because um, there are a lot of Taiwanese Christians and they use Daigi. And then before I came here, I was listening to a lot of bite-sized Taiwanese. It's like two really friendly guys. They have a lot of podcast episodes and I feel like that's a really good introduction because they make it fun. So I would like when I go running in Berkeley, I would listen to bite-sized Taiwanese. And even like everywhere I go, like when I go to acupuncture, the nurses are speaking it. And then Tuckall Books also has children's books in Taiwanese. Not a ton, but they did have like maybe two or so. And then I went to Caves Books at this university called Winsau. Um, School of Languages. My friend, my Canadian friend actually had a copy of this book. And then I was coaching a student and she was a student at Wenzhou. And, and so I realized that there was a case book at Wenzhou. So I went there and then they didn't have it on the shelf, but I started chatting with the staff and they were really nice. And yeah, like I learned that like they learn Taiwanese in school for like a few years, but they learn English for like most of their schooling. And then um, they were really nice. Like they were looking up videos on YouTube and set and like letting me know what I could watch online of like bands that are playing music in Daigi or um, other Google like res like resources in Daigi. And then they were browsing like online bookshops and then found this book and then we ordered it pretty much like about 86 percent of the population down here in Kaohsiung probably understands Taiwanese so it's a good way to learn because in Taipei they probably speak a little bit more Zhongwen like Mandarin mm. yeah and so everywhere I go I can pretty much practice I would love to know, you know, if anyone's listening to this conversation and they kind of feel similarly to you or they they see themselves reflected at any point in your story about reconnecting with your heritage, with your heritage languages, um, with your identity, what would you what would you say? I guess like I kind of try to do that through Kuishimbo. It's kind of like what Yuri Kochiyama says, like she's like cross borders learn from other people in other countries, um, exchange information, travel, learn about how other people live, learn how to look at your 
the world through other lenses. Um, maybe fall in love, like outsider culture. Um, even if, even if you know you guys hurt each other in little ways, you start to learn how to coexist together. You know, like, um, and it's like through those little things that you start to build empathy or you start to understand another person. Um, it's like, go outside your own culture to see that there are dumplings all around the world or different kinds and um, just like yours, but they do it in a different way or um, maybe learn more, educate yourself, like learn more beyond what they teach you in school. Like, you know, educate yourself a lot of that takes critical thinking. So you have to start to question things. And I think at this stage in my life, like I feel like that's the education I would pass on. Like that's kind of like the learning um, that I'm going through right now. It's like this more critical decolonial kind of undoing, unlearning, and then relearning and reconnecting. And I think that in that, there's like this sense of empowerment, like a, a deep, a strengthening of your connection to your ancestors, to your grandparents, to your cultural heritage and your tongue, like your language that feels more, that's a part of you. Like there are aspects of yourself that you're reconnecting with and that there's something about that that's actually strengthens, like it kind of gives you like a rootedness, you know, like a, a sense of purpose and also an understanding of where you come from and then maybe where you're going. So I would encourage younger folks to, to do that type of work. It's, I guess, an inner work, but also outer work. It's, it's both. Uh, tell us a bit about the, your projects and the things that you're working on and maybe how that is a reflection of you know, the journey that you're taking through reconnecting with your, uh, with your heritage? Like when I got here, I, you know, before I got here, I was processing a lot of grief um, about my grandparents, Akon and Ama, passing on. And I thought for many years, I didn't want to go back to Taiwan. I didn't even think about it because it would be too painful because they wouldn't be here. And so I didn't even think about it. Um, but after a while, I started to want to still have a connection to the land and to the culture um, that felt like them. And they grew up in Tainan and Jai. And when I got here, I was hit with this immense regret. Like, why hadn't I recorded Akon and Ama now that I'm now that I'm learning Taiwanese? Like. I, I don't have any videos of them speaking Taiwanese. Like, why hadn't I, like, I just want to hear their voices speaking Taiwanese. Like, so simple. Um, why hadn't I asked them about what it was like to grow up in Tainan and Jai now that I visited those places, like, on my own? So I had, so that's the regret is like, all of that. And so I was thinking about all of that and then also thinking, well, I am here. What can I do? I could record the people that were close to them who knew their stories, who grew up in those places and who I see fairly regularly. 
I could record them and maybe take their portrait. I was kind of imagining this creative process. And then at the same time, I was getting a lot of questions like, <laughs> like former students or like an aunt or relatives would ask, so are you going to teach English? Are you going to teach, can you teach Japanese? I guess my response to that inquiry is the World Languages Project. Why limit yourself to, you know, colonial languages? Like, why not learn a language? From my point of view, it's like, why not learn a language where if you're going to use that language to maybe one day study abroad or live and work abroad, even marry abroad, like, why not learn a language where you in, where you could relocate to a country where you have better chance of survival, of thriving? That's my straight answer. I wanted to open up the lens a little bit because it is such a small country here. It's like this small country that's shaped like a yam. And, and because some folks haven't traveled outside of it, there's sort of this little bubble where the only options seem to be like learning English and learning Japanese other than, you know, but what about learning Taiwanese? What about Hakka? What about indigenous languages? What about global languages um, of countries you haven't heard about? I had a friend who had left a voice message once on Instagram, and I didn't know that you could do that. So that gave me the idea for like people to record words and greetings that way. And then like I spent an afternoon with my buddy and he was recording tracks in this like audio production environment. And so I was kind of immersed in that type of space. And soon after that, I met his wife and they ended up mentoring me that evening just spontaneously. And then I recorded her sharing greetings in Tibetan for the project. And then I launched the project soon after that. But I also like being here in my grandparents' house, I was like looking at like going through their stuff, like, you know, because they have all these photo albums and like language learning dictionaries. And so I was realizing that like it goes back to them. Like I, they, I won't even, um, you know, he, because of the way he was treated like during martial law, like he'd actually refused to speak Zhongwen, Mandarin. Mm. And I didn't know this. <laughs> because <laughs> he encouraged me to speak Chinese like he went he actually sponsored me to go to Shida and like learn Chinese and I didn't know this and I you know I was at Shida and I was really excited because I was going to visit them and I learned and I, I I was so excited to practice with Akonenama <laughs> now that I could speak Chinese <laughs> and then I came down here and I realized like that he wouldn't speak it with me I guess I reconnected with like learning the cultural history and then wanting to learn more about how others were learning Taiwanese and how it's like firsthand from the people that are here and record them and connect with them. And so I felt like I wanted to build awareness about this thing, but it's not just me. It's like, I'm part of a whole generation of Taiwanese uh, folks in the Taiwanese diaspora who are returning to their parents' homeland, learning their heritage language, reconnecting with their cultural heritage. Um, and I, so I wanted to record and document it in my mm -hmm. own way. Let us know where we can find uh, where we can find you on social media so that we can we can be a part of this joy too. 
<laughs> so I'm on IG at Quishimbo Media. And then on Facebook, it's Quishimbo. And I do upload all of the recordings for the project on YouTube at World Languages Project. And it's fairly new. I just launched it like just a few months ago. Yeah, I also have like a pers my personal social accounts, but that's what I would that's what I would follow, I guess. Yeah. Quishimbo. I will add the links to those in the show notes for this episode so that people can click and find you right away. This conversation has been really good. Like, I would even say great. And I've really enjoyed chatting with you. I feel like we are similar in age. And I feel like the way that you tell a story is very specific to our, our like, micro generation <laughs> way of telling stories and talking about and talking about things so for me um it's been enjoyable to talk to someone who referenced growing up in the 80s and 90s like I did <laughs> awesome radical I know totally totally rad thank you because you know you shared a lot of your story and and I really appreciate um, you know, talking about your story and how it relates to language and heritage and culture and food, because all of these things are tied together. Um, one of the things uh, that I, I really like to do with this show is show people that language is not necessarily um, extricable from culture, from history, from language, from identity. And it's really important to take all of these things together. So I thank you again for sharing your story, for sharing your story with language, for sharing your history. And, um, you know, I honor your family with this episode as well. And I, you know, I dedicate this episode, our conversation to your family, to your, to your relatives, your ancestors, and, and, and thank them also for being a part of you and part of your story. Um, and, and, and sharing that story with all of us. Dosha El. So in Taiwanese, we say Dosha to say thank you. So Dosha El. Dosha. Yes. Yeah. Do. It just means like, like Do is many. And then Xia is kind of like Xie Xie the Xie. It's like in Taiwanese, it's Xia. So it's oh. many things. Um, and then I guess we also say Gam Xia, which is like gratitude. So Gam Xia El. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's always a joy to talk to you, I guess. It's like online, but it's, I guess, we're connecting. We're not really talking, but I guess through, um, like, through STP, I feel like I have gotten to know you a little bit. You're very warm, and I feel like you are really great at, like, holding space. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I think part of it for this level of language learning with cultural history is, like, I appreciate that I feel like you're able to hold space for all of me and I feel comfortable sharing all of me. And I really, so I really appreciate that because this level of uh, language learning can feel like, like it really requires a certain level of comfort, you know, to see all of that and to understand. And I feel like you're really excellent at doing that. And so I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. Thank Gumption. you. Thank you. <laughs>
I like to end each episode with the same question, just to have a little bit of fun. Um, let's see what we can do with this one. Uh, do you have any jokes, popular sayings, tongue twisters, cool slang words, idioms, words of wisdom, or words of advice in Taiwanese Hokkien to share and to teach us? I guess... Well, here in Taiwan, if you say Taiwanese Hokkien, like no one will understand me if I say that. So we'll say, so Papa will tell me, tell me like to use Taiwan way. Taiwan way. And so in Taiwan way, when we say like, what's up, like as a greeting, um, like when you see someone, you say hello, you know, in Taiwan, you can say way. And it means like, have you eaten yet? Oh, I love that. <laughs> Literally asking if you've had lunch or something. They're checking. Because <laughs> in case you have it, <laughs> we're going to get some food. <laughs> oh, snap. That is the way to greet somebody. Please teach me that. Japabwe. <laughs> Japabwe? Japabwe. Yeah, I've also heard it said Japabe, but Japabwe is how I learned it. Japabwe. They actually say it. Like, I went out hiking with a bunch of Taiwanese folks, and they, I watched them eat an entire meal. Like, they got a bunch of plates with a bunch of, like, large portions, and they finished it. And I was like, okay, so we're going to head home. And on the way back to the car... <laughs> The guys were like on their phones talking about their, and they kept asking, like, Jabawi, is there any more space left in your belly? And I thought they were joking. I thought they, I, I seriously thought they were joking. Like, I, and I, so I kept asking my friend, like, what's going on? Like, do they want to go get dessert or something? And it wasn't like dessert or tea. It was like, the savory pork <laughs> like a red mm. fried yeah and it's made in this little this little town it's like a Hakka community and so there was you know we went to the little stand in and it was there was like a line so we waited in the car and the guy came back and we like it came with a sauce and it's super grubby we ate it mm. so I feel like that's like a really good Taiwanese yeah. greeting to like, know. I feel like I would fit in with that group because I'm like, especially when <laughs> I travel, I'm like lunch, I'm like breakfast, second breakfast, lunch, maybe second lunch, <laughs> early dinner, real dinner. Because it's like, I, 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 I realize that my time is finite when I'm in this in another place. So I'm like, I, I want to hit everything. And not that I'll have a huge big meal everywhere, but I'll, you know, I want to pick from like seven different places a day so that I have a, you know, I have a, an array of things to, to try. Um, but I like that. And I think asking someone if they've eaten to say hello is amazing. I love that. <laughs> They're actually asking. So you want to say like, you can say Japa. 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 Like I've eaten. Um, and then um, do you want to learn something that's kind of like funny, but it's like, I learned it from a gangster movie. 
Sure. Okay, so this is like, I was watching this gangster movie called Gatao, The Last Stray, and the main character is like, he's like the lieutenant gangster, and he finds out that the girl he's interested in is her, her uncle is part of the gang, and he goes, Kaobei. <laughs> in the subtitles, it said, no way. Um, and I... I met the guys on the hike and I told him about it. And then he was like, oh, I thought it was Kape. And he was like, no, it's Kaobe. And so he he taught me how to say it correctly. Um, but you don't want to say it to like, it's impolite to say to like the headmaster's wife or something. <laughs> you just, you want to just say it to your friends. <laughs> like when you want to kind of say like, dang or darn it or what the heck, you know, to put a little emphasis. Mm -hmm. It's very, um, and then, yeah, I think the country, I don't know if it's because there was like famine or something when they were migrating because everyone is, seems to be perpetually hungry and like even the monkeys and even the turtles and the ducks and stuff. It's weird. So, um, so here in Taiwan, for like a grubber, like someone who loves to eat, they say yao jia gui. Um, yao jia gui. Yeah, yao jia gui. I think it literally means love to eat monster. <laughs> <laughs> In Japanese, it's me. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like booty or you know, glutton. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, <laughs> And then since I'm a photographer, like I saw like a table once that was shaped like the shape of Taiwan. And I thought, oh, my God, I have to take a picture. And so the guys, um, there were guys actually eating their like mung bean dohua, like right there. And I they're eating on the table. And I was like, I guess they could be in the shot. But I, I asked my dad, like, how do I ask them if I could take a picture? And he said, gua gam e sai hip shong. So gua is I or me. I'm not sure gam e, but e sai is kai, like is it okay? And hip shong is take a picture. And then they said, they replied, they said, no problem. Bobunde. That's an easy one. Bobunde. Bobunde. Yeah, you could use that in Queens, I'm sure. <laughs> if they speak Daigi. They might just be Jongwen, I don't know. <laughs> um, so many useful phrases. I love this. Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing them, Erica. Um, this has been a true pleasure, again, to talk with you. And um, I know that it's probably getting late for you on your end. So um, I really appreciate the, you know, staying up, hanging out late with me to talk about your language and your culture. Um, and this is, in this instance, in, a, in an instance like this, after you've been talking to someone for quite some time uh, in Taiwan, what, and you're about to go your separate ways as we are in Taiwan, uh, what would be the best way to say goodbye? I like to say zaihui, like bye. They actually just say bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bye-bye.
Erica, thank you again for this conversation and I will be talking to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you, El Dosha. Bye. Bye. New episodes of Speaking Tongues are available every Monday, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to like and share episodes with other language lovers like ourselves. A bientôt.